Welcome to the EFC Podcast. My name is Karen Stiller, and I'm an editor with Faith Today magazine. We're joined today by Julia Beasley, who is the Director of Public Policy for the EFC. We're going to be having a conversation about some of the top issues uh, that the EFC is dealing with this fall, and also give you, um, our viewers, a chance to ask questions of Julia and just sort of find out what's going on. So you can ask questions anytime using the chat option on your screen, and we welcome you to do that. So welcome, Julia. Hi, good to be here. Thank you. So uh, we just want to touch on some of the top issues and hear what Canadian Christians and churches sort of need to know on some of these things. So why don't we just jump right in? And uh, I thought we could start with euthanasia and assisted suicide, which kind of feels like a done deal in Canada. Is it? What do we need to know about that? So it's been just over a year since euthanasia and assisted suicide became legal in Canada. So that was June 2016. Um, so they laid out some eligibility criteria to say who could receive euthanasia or assisted suicide. Um, it's, of course, been legal in Quebec since, I think, December 2015. Um, euthanasia has been legal there. So I've seen different numbers, but it, it seems as though somewhere between 1,300 and 1,400 Canadians have either received euthanasia or assisted suicide in that time. So it's a done deal in the sense that these practices are legal, but the debates and the battles surrounding um, these are far from done. So at the moment, these battles are kind of happening on three different fronts. So whether the government should expand access to what we prefer to call hasten death um, beyond what was allowed by the legislation, whether some of the limiting criteria written into the legislation as a safeguard should be removed. And ongoing is the question of whether or not governments will protect the freedom of conscience of healthcare workers and facilities. So, um, Written into the legislation was a requirement that within a certain period of time, the ministers of health and, and justice initiate three different studies. Um, one was on whether the government should expand access to euthanasia and assisted suicide to what they call mature minors, um, whether it should be um, permitted for individuals for whom mental health is the sole underlying medical condition, and whether or not we should allow the use of advanced directives. Um, for euthanasia, which would mean that someone would not be capable of consenting at the time. Okay, let me ask Julia. So sure. the advanced directive, meaning uh, that they had give, indicated prior that they wanted that option and yeah. then it's put into yeah. place. So okay. this is something that, you know, we would generally encourage people to plan, plan ahead. You know, what are the kinds of medical care you want to receive? You know, what are your plans for the end of life? But the question of whether we should allow people to say, if I um, reach point X, Y, or Z in my condition, or if I become incapable of doing this or that, um, I would like to be euthanized. And the challenge um, is that there is a lot of room for abuse if people are not able, like currently under the law, you have to be able to say at the time, yes, I consent to this being done to me. So this would remove that requirement, which raises a whole host of, of um, challenges and questions. Okay, so what is the EFC doing? So are we trying to, we're trying to shape what is now a reality, is that right? 
Yeah, so the government has asked uh, a nonprofit called the Council of Canadian Academies to do these studies. So these studies have been underway for some time. Um, the council is hearing from stakeholders and receiving input. So the EFC was invited to make a submission. Um, so we will be doing that this week, actually, by Friday. Um, we'll send in a submission sort of arguing that we think that these these safeguards and restrictions need to be maintained and that access should not be expanded in these ways. Um, so they will receive all of their input and hear from whoever they're hearing from and they are set to report back to Parliament by December 2018 on their findings. They're not necessarily supposed to make recommendations to Parliament, but they are to report kind of what they learn, what they hear. Okay, and then we can expect Parliament to take that study mm -hmm. and then present to Canadians a sort of newer version of this reality. Yeah. Okay. All right. So is there something uh, Canadian churches should be doing to, should we still be contacting MPs? Does that, is that still? Yeah, I think as long as this is an ongoing conversation, there is great value in people continuing to communicate with their MPs that they don't think that access should be expanded beyond okay. what it, what it already is. All right. Let me ask you just because Maybe it may be that contact with MPs is a positive action to take through for all these issues. So for someone to actually contact their MP, I know they find out who their MP is. Is it better to call? Is it better to write? Mm -hmm. Do you have some insight there? Yeah. So there's sort of a um, in an ideal world. <laughs> Everybody who was really concerned about something would call their MP's office and ask for a face-to-face -face meeting. Um, okay. We know that that is not always possible because of both the individual's time and the MP's time, but face-to-face -face is most effective. A phone call would be second, a personal letter or email third, and you know, on things like this, the EFC tends to make form letters available that we hope in most cases people will use as a guide um, as an example of the kinds of arguments you can make, the way you can sort of approach the issue and frame it. Um, so there's all these sort of different ways that you can communicate. Um, but most effective is when it's obvious that there is some sort of personal, some personal effort and initiative made. Okay, great. Thank you. Uh, so let's move on and we can come back to euthanasia and assisted suicide if, uh, if people ask questions about it, of course. Um, but Bill C-51. So mm -hmm. help us understand, first of all, like my understanding is that um, that bill is a broad thing that is about removing redundant or outdated criminal laws, one of which prohibits people from disrupting a worship service. Is that what it is? Yeah, so it's it's kind of what we would call a housekeeping bill. Um, and what they're saying is that it's meant to clean up provisions in the criminal code that are outdated, redundant, unnecessary. So um, it does something good. One of the good things it does is clarify the sexual assault provisions. Um, and some of the outdated provisions, some of it's kind of funny. So for example, it removes a provision that says you can't challenge someone to a duel. <laughs> so there are, there are things like that that they are cleaning out of the code. But tucked into this bill is a clause that would remove Section 176. So this, as you mentioned, is a section that offers specific protection for clergy and for religious gatherings. Um, the reasoning the government has given is that this clause is redundant. So what it covers is covered elsewhere. 
And it is true that there are other offenses or other provisions that would offer roughly similar protection. Um, so for example, public disturbance generally or harassment on the street and that kind of thing. This is the only criminal code protection specifically for religious activities. And um, while it's not exactly an infringement on religious freedom, it could impact how safe and free religious adherents feel when they gather. Okay. So in our view, it's also quite significant because it recognizes that there is something unique and distinct about religious gatherings, that there is a good there that there is a value that is worthy of specific protection. And so a loss of that recognition would feel like a further erosion of the understanding of the place and value of religious belief and practice in our society. And so in our research, we're also not sure that we agree that this section is redundant. Um, so we're doing some work to figure out, would these other offenses in fact, in all cases, cover off these sorts of offenses. And it's certainly not obsolete because it was used as recently as a year ago in a case here in Ottawa. So we're kind of doing this, this research, trying to come up with um, some good concrete arguments in support of maintaining this provision in the criminal code. Okay. And you know, what strikes me as very interesting is that this seems to be where the meaning of it matters a lot. So it's not that you're anticipating there'll be like this onslaught of interruptions in worship service across Canada once this is removed. It's the recognition of a religious service as something, you know, kind of extraordinary that is important to be maintained. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Now, so, as, as I said, it, you know, it could be the kind of thing that does have implications for religious freedom. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not sure the government would would see it that way at this point. So part of our job and the job of other faith groups who will be speaking to this is to sort of paint that whole picture and how this is important in the grand scheme of things, how this matters to protecting um, religious freedom for Canadians. Okay, wow, that's very interesting. So again, the question, what should uh, we be doing? People of the pew, should we be contacting MPs or just kind of be watching how this plays out? I would always encourage okay. um, people to communicate with their MPs. As we've said before, this is what they are there for, to represent yeah. us and our concerns in Parliament. And if this is a concern, then um, they need to be hearing it from people. Okay. Yeah. And um, do you know what the timeline is for the bill? this Bill C-51? Is it when will we hear the conclusion of this? So it has been referred to the Justice Committee. Um, we're not entirely clear how quickly it will come up in their agenda. They have a very busy agenda for the fall. Um, so we're just kind of watching to see when this will come up. And as I said, we've already begun working on developing our arguments and um, a brief on this to committee. So we will ask to appear before the committee when they have their hearings and we will um, submit a brief asking that these protections be maintained. Okay. One of the things yeah. we've heard suggested mm -hmm. is that one of the concerns might be that obviously, as I said, one of the provisions being removed is, you know, prohibition on challenging someone to a duel. So some of these provisions were written a long time ago. Um, so one of the concerns we've heard raised uh, is that when this was written, the language was very Christian specific. Okay. Um, 
I'm not sure that's actually true. And, you know, I've consulted with other faith partners who said, no, we feel like we'd be covered by this. But um, one of the things we can say and that you can say if you're communicating with your MP is that if that is a concern, then it's easy to redraft it. Just mm. amend the provision to make it clear that it applies broadly to all faith groups. So this is the kind of thing we're working through. Okay, great. Well, let's move on to M103. Um, So I think most Canadians are familiar with it as the private member's motion um, that was condemning Islamophobia and systemic racism and religious discrimination. Mm -hmm. Is that right? Is that how we define it? Yeah, so it, it called on the Canadian Heritage Committee to conduct a study on systemic racism and religious discrimination in Canada, and it did single out, in particular, Islamophobia. Um, but yes, that is that is the gist of what this does. So the Heritage Committee actually had their very first meeting yesterday, so they have begun their study. Um, we expect this one to actually be quite a thorough study, um, in that they will have probably several meetings and hear from many witnesses. Um, so we have asked to participate as a witness and again are working on our submission. And what we hope this will do, and actually listening to the sponsor M- sponsoring MPs comments yesterday, um, I think it is hopeful that in this hearing we can have kind of a fulsome study and discussion about religious discrimination in Canada, the many ways it's manifested in our society. You know, as as evangelicals, we may not um, typically be victim to the kinds of hate crimes that other faith groups might be, but we do encounter discrimination on the basis mm-hmm. of our beliefs. So think of the battle for conscience protection for doctors who don't want to have to participate in any way in euthanasia or assisted suicide, or Trinity Western's ongoing battle over their law school accreditation. So. Um, we will talk about kind of this anti-religious bias that we see developing in Canadian society and talk about what does it mean to live and, um, yeah, how to live with the kinds of religious difference that we have in Canada, which is a very religiously plural society. Um, We can talk about the good and positive examples we have of interfaith collaboration. So groups Mm -hmm. who deep deeply disagree on all kinds of fundamental questions of belief, yet come together um, and learn to respect one another and appreciate one another and work together collaboratively for the good of our nation. So we can talk about those kinds of things. And again, one of the key concerns that we and most others had with this motion Um, Actually, probably the only real concern we have with it, because the study is a good thing, right? Looking at these questions is a good thing. The use of the word Islamophobia, though, was was very troubling um, because it is unclear and it's undefined. It's a fairly new term, so it hasn't really kind of been tested out. What does this mean? Does this mean um, discrimination or bias against Islam as a faith or against Muslims? So we will really be encouraging the use of a term, something like anti-Muslim bigotry. It's very clear then that we are saying um, bigotry or discrimination or whatever directed towards um, adherence of the faith against Muslims is not acceptable. But in our society, 
you have to be able to question or critique or challenge um, the religion itself. So our laws have always sort of made it clear that we don't protect the religion itself, we protect the practitioners. So we want to really encourage them to make sure that the language they use is clear and careful and sticks to that. We protect the practitioner, not the faith itself. So the uh, like when I hear Islamophobia, I hear the phobia part, which I connect with fear. So I mean, that's part of the issue there, too, I guess. So um, and as we uh, as we say, we want the right to sort of critique and interact with religion, protect it. We're we're also opening ourselves to that as well. Right. We're saying you can criticize Christianity. Yeah, or, and people do, right? right people do right. all the time. They mock, they criticize, they say all kinds of things, and that is fair yeah, <laughs> in a free and yeah. democratic society. Yeah. Um, but there is a line, you know, where where you're moving into discrimination and, and those kinds of things. That And that's the kind of thing that needs to be sorted out, I think, in this study. So, um, as I said, it's already begun. Um, we will be attending, monitoring, and hopefully um, appearing as a witness. So um, we will let people know in our update as soon as we know if and when we're uh, we're doing that, and we'll make our submission available as well for people. Okay, and so just in terms of process to help people understand and to help me understand, uh, when you've applied to appear as a witness, are you preparing um, material that you submit to say this is the kind of thing we'll say, can we show up? Um, yeah, you d- we don't go into a great deal of detail in the request. We sort of say, here's who we are, here is our history and our um, engagement in these kinds of questions. We would love to appear as a witness. Um, if we are invited, then we will prepare oral comments. Usually you have a fairly short constrained period of time to do that. So then you make a fuller written submission, which will um, give a lot more detail on on your position and your argument. So that we will do either way, um, a written submission. Okay, can I ask you, Julia, I know uh, we talked a bit about the the pushback, uh, the appropriate pushback on the term Islamophobia. I know that uh, you, I think in Ottawa, you heard from a lot of Christians on M103. Mm-hmm. So uh, we have a question from a viewer. How, how should we as Christians respond to this bill? Like, what are you, what are you hoping the Canadian church will do and feel and respond to this? Hmm, that's a good question. Um, it was disheartening to see a lot of the response. There was a lot of misinformation that was initially sort of put out there about the motion. Um, the fact that it was a motion and not legislation, um, what it was trying to do, what it could conceivably do. Um, So there was a lot of fear and there was a lot of reaction. Um, You know, there has been some concern about whether Islamophobia or Islam should be singled out as a religion. We do have some precedent for this. There was um, a motion on anti-Semitism a few years ago. You know, so it's not like this hasn't been done before. I think what we really hope that people will do is, as I said, encourage, um, say we really want to have a a full and fair conversation about religious discrimination in Canada. Mm -hmm. The importance in a religiously plural society of not trying to sort of stifle difference 
or eliminated, but learning how to foster an environment that really respects and you know allows different religious voices to have their place and to um, yeah to participate in society. Um, I I would you know expect people who are concerned about the use of the word Islamophobia to say so. Mm-hmm. Um, but always we want to do this in a way that is respectful, um, that is that is loving and gentle, but wise and all of these things. Um, yeah, I think it would be great if there was a lot of um, a lot of communication from the Christian community that reflected those things that, okay. that was not based in fear and not based in you know misinformation, but right. just reasoned and gentle and gracious and clear. The MP who um, who introduced this motion, she she had she dealt with a lot, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm not saying that's from the Christian community. I don't know who it was from, but mm-hmm. I know that she. Just generally, there was so much reaction, and and a lot of it was very aggressive. So I think it would be wonderful if she heard in spades from, you know, from Christians saying, "We appreciate what you're trying to do. We are concerned, though, yeah, that this, this could have unintended consequences. Mm-hmm. And and please just be very clear. We need to be very clear about what we are talking about. Yeah. So I. Just to help us even further, so the, the difference between motion and legislation, am I understanding that a motion is more of a statement? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Now, it could be that the committee, out of their study, would recommend that the government look at legislation in one area or another, okay. but a motion itself doesn't really have any uh, teeth to it in terms okay. of changing laws or anything like that. So this was just um, as M47 on pornography was, this was mm-hmm. a, a motion asking a committee to study a particular issue so that we have a wealth and a body of research on the record, you know, and then out of that, we can pursue legislation or further research or whatever, whatever comes of it. Okay, so we'll just keep watching the EFC website and material uh, to find out how that's progressing. So you mentioned pornography, which is a good segue uh, to the next topic I wanted to bring up. Um, So this is an issue the EFC has been dealing with for a while and presenting Mm -hmm. it as a public health issue. And uh, last year, um, a booklet was released that a lot of Canadian Christians have requested about uh, how to respond to pornography and how to help. So tell us, uh, bring us up to speed, Julia, what's happening now with this issue? Yeah, so I just mentioned Motion M47. Um, this was, I think we've talked about this on a webinar before, but just a recap, this was the motion that called on the House of Commons Health Committee to study the public health effects of violent and degrading sexually explicit material online. So we worked hard in support of this motion um, communicated with and met with MPs to kind of promote that public health understanding. We held informational events for MPs on the Hill. Um, We brought in an expert on the question of public health and pornography. Um, So the motion passed in the House of Commons and the committee did hold a brief study, was much briefer than we might have hoped. That was last spring. They did, though, particularly in one session, hear some very, very strong testimony. And they also received a number of written briefs outlining public health concerns. Um, Most, I would say, with the exception of maybe two or three of the briefs, did share that 
um, concern for the public health impacts of pornography. Um, the committee released their report before Parliament rose for the summer. Um, and as we have said before, the, the report was was pretty disappointing. Mm. It fell far short of identifying, naming the range of harms to children, to women, to men um, that were outlined for them um, by witnesses and in the written briefs. In fact, it didn't pay much attention at all to the testimony that was most relevant to the question at hand. Um, and the recommendations were not very strong. It was primarily centered around the question of education. We need better sex education. Well, so why do you why why did this happen? Do you think why why was the report so disappointing? That I you know I can only speculate, and I will try not to do that here. <laughs> okay, <laughs> but what I do know for sure is that um, it's a contentious issue. Mm. Nobody wants to be seen. There's still this crazy perception that pornography is somehow a question of freedom of expression. Right, right. Um, and so I think there's a reluctance to sort of go there. And to be perfectly honest, I don't know if I said this before, but my greatest hope for this study was that it would get the research on the record. Okay. That it would provide a vehicle to get the wealth of research that is out there on the table, on the record, and kind of frame the understanding of the issue differently. I don't know that I really expected strong recommendations out of mm. it, although from the conversation in committee and from the testimony, I, I was at the end of the day sort of expecting they would say something about restricting access to children or restricting access, you know what I mean? Yes, um, from, yeah, yes, children could from not children. Yeah. Um, so I was a bit surprised when that didn't make it in mm to the report um, in any kind of substantive way. Uh, yeah, so, but, but really what we wanted was, we really wanted to see this framing of the issue. So we're kind of in a waiting period now because when a committee tables a report, the government has a certain amount of time in which to issue a response. So I think that has to happen by December, if I'm not mistaken. So um, what we're doing in the meantime is trying to keep this issue top of mind as MPs head into a really busy fall. Okay. Um, so the health minister will table a response sometime before Christmas. Um, so we will watch for and respond to that. And one of the things we have done, and I, we have a sample letter on our website that I think we may have to update because there's been a change in, in minister, but we have written to the health minister asking her to consider the fullness of the testimony. So not mm -hmm. just what made it into the report, but really look at the fullness of the testimony before the committee, look at the written briefs and consider all of that when framing your response to what um, the committee has done. Uh, so we've also asked the health minister to initiate a study on the public health impacts. So we need more research. If we're saying we're not sure the research is conclusive, well, then we need yeah, to do, do that. And, yeah. and we need to look seriously at how we can protect children, because surely that is something that everyone agrees on, is that this material is not healthy for children to access. And we restrict them from um, all kinds of other things 
that either they are not mature enough for or that are harmful to them. So this has to be one of those things too. So we'll be working, continuing to work on those things. Yeah, well that uh, certainly came up recently in Ottawa yes. when a family, a mother and her children came upon a man viewing, it sounds like quite you know, hardcore pornography mm -hmm. in the middle of a public library. And um, the last I heard about that, the, the libraries, you know, their hands were tied to a certain extent because they needed to protect, and they used the term, the intellectual freedom yeah. of the user in the library. So that to me kind of, uh, you know, summed up the challenges that we're dealing with here, that this yeah. idea of intellectual freedom kind of trumps all. Yeah. And that needs to change, particularly when we're talking about exposure to children, but not just mm -hmm. children. What about female patrons of the library or staff, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. who it, it does a certain degree of violence to them to have to see this when they're walking by or if it gets left open, you would be. I wish I could say that this happens rarely, but it doesn't. It happens, mm -hmm. you know, fairly often across the country. And I will say that the Ottawa Library is not alone in their response. Right. Um, our partner, Defend Dignity, has uh, made the Toronto Public Library uh, a target of their Choose Change campaign because mm -hmm. they they give the same, no, we are committed to intellectual freedom and we're not changing this. We're not going to restrict this. Um, so it, it's a common line among libraries. Yeah. And so we need to mount that public pressure. So uh, if we could get the Toronto Public Library and everybody wanted to go onto Defend Dignity's website and participate in their Choose Change campaign, <laughs> right. um, then if they would change their tune, then other library associations might follow. So we need to keep up that kind of pressure, but some of it is yeah. just changing the understanding and the perception. Pornography yeah. today is not what it used to be. And it's it's a lot trickier to argue that this is intellectual freedom or freedom of expression or whatever you want to call it. Um, this does harm. Yeah. If if we don't want to talk about the harm to the viewer, what about the people walking by? You know. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, this is something that we would encourage people to express their concerns about too. You do that at a different level. You would communicate that to your local library. If there hasn't been an incident where you are, you can be proactive and you can say, hey, we think that mm -hmm. this library should put good filters in place Yeah, um, to make sure that this kind of thing doesn't happen. And the EFC produced this booklet in the past year, uh, sort of a resource kit with the discussion questions and so on. Mm -hmm. um, maybe we can tell viewers about that and how they can, we can still send out copies of that, right? Yeah, if you uh, contact us, we can send you physical copies. I believe you can download it online. Okay. Um, the booklet has been really well received, which has been very, very encouraging. Mm -hmm. um, and for the purpose we'd hoped, you know, just start talking about it yeah. in your small groups, in your family, in your church. We need to start having conversations about this because it is so prevalent Um you know, we know statistically that it's an issue for lots of people in the church. And if it's not your children, unless they live in a bubble mm -hmm. and everyone they associate also lives in a bubble, at some point it's going to come up. And so we really want to encourage um, churches and families to be proactive and open about this, to talk about uh, the harms and the challenges and ways of protecting ourselves and how we can recover yeah. um, when damage has already been done. Yeah. 
Okay, thank you. Uh, speaking of toolkits and resources, um, we uh, I know the EFC has been working on a palliative care toolkit. Uh, maybe you can tell us more about that. What's What will be in that? Sure. So we, uh, in light of, we produced our booklet on euthanasia and assisted suicide. I think that was a couple of years now. Um, and we have really been trying to promote palliative care. Um, this became especially critical in light of the legalization of euthanasia and assisted suicide when we still don't have the, the availability of palliative care that we need to have. So um, we've been doing things legislatively, working in an interfaith capacity, um, encouraging the government to prioritize this issue and to really address this need. Um, so with this toolkit, um, we're really hoping that it will be something that will help individuals and churches to learn more about palliative care. What is it in its fullness? Mm. Um, I think most of us, I, I, I think I certainly did before I started really looking at it in, in depth, I had a fairly limited understanding of what palliative care was. I associated it essentially with hospice at the very, very end of life. But as envisioned, it's a much bigger thing. Um, and it makes a huge difference in the lives of patients and in the lives of their caregivers and loved ones. Um, so I think to understand what palliative care is, why it matters so much, why it is so consistent with our faith as Christians, mm -hmm. why it fits so well with what we believe, um, and you know, sort of what are the needs, what what is our reality, and what can we do to advocate for better palliative care? But also, and this is the part I'm I'm, I'm really hopeful and excited about is we want to help equip um, churches to engage in their communities. So what are the ways that we can get involved in either supporting um, financially, with volunteering? Um, how can we support local palliative care initiatives? Um, a lot of people want to be cared for at home. You know, so there are all kinds of ways that we can step in. So, so how do we do that? How do we do that well? And how do we um, kind of put our money where our mouth is and, and really get in there and participate in providing the kind of care that makes such a profound difference in the lives of people who are um, living with illness or nearing death. And I guess when I'm hearing you say that, I'm thinking this is a great example of being able to be for something. Mm -hmm. um, you know, on one hand, we are, you know, struggling to keep euthanasia and assisted suicide yeah. tightly defined and so you know protect the vulnerable people but in the, on the other hand we can actually be helping and yes. caring for people which and yeah. I understand uh, like palliative care right now in Canada is not an option for everyone is it like it's not even yeah the estimate is that about 30 percent of Canadians uh, who need it have access and that's just I mean that can't be and yeah and while the sort of the battle against sort of the tide in our culture that has such a limited and subjective view of the value of life, that mm -hmm. that's a tricky battle. And, mm -hmm. and we will continue to fight that. But we know from um, data from all kinds of places that when palliative care, when good palliative care is available, people are far less likely to request assistance in dying. Yeah. Yeah. So, 
um, because palliative care, I you hear I just used assistance in dying. I try to always use the term hastened death. Okay. Um, and that was in response to testimony from palliative care uh, associations and physicians before the committees that what they do is assist people in dying well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So they said, don't, yeah. don't, don't call this assistance in dying because that's what we do. And this, what we do is something fundamentally different from ending life. Right. Right. Um, but when people are assisted in dying well, then they are far, far less likely to make those kinds of requests. Mm -hmm. So um, it's a really good way that we can say, you know what, we want to promote a different, you know, a different way for people. Yeah. And we want people to have that kind of support and um, that multidisciplinary care that just surrounds them so fully and their family. And, and yeah, anyway, I could, it's, yeah. Well, it's, it's very powerful. Um, I did a story a couple of years ago for Faith Today on the connection between palliative care and hastened death. And uh, it was, yeah, it, everyone I spoke to, the palliative care docs, and the, they were all pretty clear that mm -hmm. when people are cared for properly yeah. and uh, feel supported and their fears are listened to and so on, that, yeah, it, it decreases dramatically the requests for yeah. Euthanasia well, and most commonly people make these requests either because they're afraid right. of what's coming. Yeah. Um, but one of the top reasons is, is not wanting to be a burden. Mm. You don't mm -hmm. want to be a burden on your family and your loved ones. Oh, um, that's sad. Yeah. So, so these are all the kinds of questions that palliative care can address because it, it, it is, it is meant to look at the whole person. Yeah. Not just the symptoms. It, it does manage symptoms, but it also looks at the whole person and meets the needs of the whole person. And it's very effective. I actually, there was a, there's a great TED talk and I would say his name if I could remember it right now, but I can't. He's a palliative care physician from the US and, and they've done some research and people actually live longer hmm. when they receive good palliative care because it makes that much of a difference in wow. just the overall well-being of the patient. Yeah. Amazing. Um, so it's less expensive, which we don't mm -hmm. like to kind of reduce it to that sort of argument, but it also, it enhances the quality of life and it seems to extend um, the life of the patient when as envisioned, it's sort of provided throughout the course of illness. Okay, so it's well, really, it's quite a beautiful thing. Yeah. Well, we'll look forward to that toolkit then. That sounds great. Um, so we've touched on some, not all, but some of the issues uh, the EFC is dealing with this fall. Uh, you're also busy in the courts. Can mm -hmm. you just give us a thumbnail sketch about what's going on there as our time comes to a close? Sure. So uh, in November and December, the Supreme Court of Canada is going to hear two different cases concerning religious freedom. Um, and we are intervening in both. The first is the Wall case, which concerns sort of broadly whether the courts have jurisdiction over internal membership decisions of churches and voluntary organizations. Um, that is in early November. And then at the end of November, so November 30th and December 1st, um, we will be back in the Supreme Court as they hear the Trinity Western case. Wow. So courts in Ontario, BC and Nova Scotia have already kind of made their decisions about this. And now the Supreme Court will um, have the opportunity to weigh in on this. So we will be there for that as well. On the question of euthanasia, the other one, um, there is a court case kind of developing. Um, you will hear us 
from here on in probably refer to it as the lamb case. So I mentioned earlier on that, that there was a challenge to um, some of the restrictions. So the legislation has a requirement in it that a patient's death be reasonably foreseeable to be eligible for euthanasia or assisted suicide. So this is a challenge of that requirement. Um, so that will be called the Lamb case, and we're kind of readying ourselves to uh, ask for intervener status in that case as well, because that will be a really important one. Um, but we don't really know yet what uh, what the timeline on that will be. Okay. Well, that's uh, thank you. Sounds very busy. It is. <laughs> and, yes. <laughs> um, on, I would like to share with our viewers that on Sunday, November 26, uh, the EFC, along with the Canadian Council of Christian Charities, is uh, asking Canadians to pray uh, specifically for religious freedom in Canada and the Trinity Western University case. So uh, that's something that we as a church, a national church, can come together and pray on that day. Um, so, Julia, with all these issues, people can get updates from the website, the EFC.ca, anytime, correct? And yeah. we have Canada Watch, a newsletter that goes out, and we have a weekly update and, of course, more webinars. Um, so you will find a recording of this webinar at the EFC.ca slash webinars. And uh, we had really wanted this webinar to be like a touch on a touch up on all these issues. So uh, if you're able to share it with people who may want to know what's happening, please do. Uh, our next webinar is scheduled for Wednesday, October 18th, and that will focus on helping people recover from uh, pornography addiction and pornography use. So we're looking forward to that. So Julia, thank you. That was uh, great, very informative. I think we all understand more now what's going on. So, and thank you to everyone who joined us today. Uh, please check back with the EFC.ca to find out more information on all these issues and also webinars to come. So thank you.